Well, hello again, and welcome back to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. I'm Nurse Mo, and I am your biggest cheerleader today, and I'm really, really glad that you're here. Today, we're going to be diving into cardiac assessment, and before we get into that topic, let's take a quick minute for a listener shout-out, and this one goes out to Angel, and Angel says this, I'm in my first semester for my ADN. I've done the boot camp, listened to the Straight A podcast, and now Nurse Mo and I are study buddies. The material in all of the programs have helped me so much in my first semester of nursing school. Thank you, Angel, for taking the time to let me know how your first semester is going. That's so excited. I remember my first semester of nursing school like it just happened. It was so much fun. So much change. I just, I loved absolutely everything about it. And I really hope that you do too. And I'm so glad the podcast and the boot camp have helped you do that. I, for one, am thrilled to be your study buddy too. Okay, so let's jump in to cardiac assessment. So you're going to be doing a full-blown cardiac assessment on patients who have a known cardiac history who have maybe a suspected cardiac issue. And it might just be something that's done maybe in a clinic as part of just a full physical assessment of a patient. Now, you do conduct a little bit of a cardiac assessment when you do your head-to-toe assessment, but a focused, full-blown cardiac assessment is going to be much more in depth. Now, one caveat here is if your patient is having an acute event, you're not going to go through all of this because I'm going to talk about a lot of things that you're going to be doing. If your patient is having an acute event and is in acute distress, you're going to do the assessments you need to do for that acute event so that you can get them treatment immediately. Okay, so that's your caveat there. So one of the keys to knowing who might be at risk for cardiac disease can help you determine if they're likely to have a cardiac problem. So these risk factors are things like hypertension, smoking, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, and obesity. Of course, you're also going to be doing very careful assessments for people that you know have cardiac disease, like a valve disorder or heart failure or a congenital heart defect, things like that. Now, when you're doing your head-to-toe assessment of a patient and you do a little bit of a cardiac assessment with that, like I mentioned, some clues that you might want to dig deeper might be things like the patient says they have palpitations. Well, they may have something like atrial fibrillation. Let's do a deeper cardiac assessment here. Maybe the patient has told you that they've been having syncopal episodes over the past few weeks. Every now and then, they have a syncopal episode. This patient is going to get a more extensive cardiac assessment than what you would do in your basic head-to-toe. Let's say you're working in a doctor's office or a clinic and a patient comes in and says they have swelling in their feet and legs. Well, guess what? That patient may have heart failure. You will be doing a more thorough cardiac assessment on that patient. But again, if your patient's in acute distress, they've got chest pain, they're short of breath, 
They have decreased level of consciousness. They have significant pulmonary congestion. They have pallor or cyanosis or that cool, clammy skin. They're having bigger problems and you need to get them treatment immediately, not go through a 20-minute cardiac assessment, okay? So that is my caveat with that. Now, let's talk about some of the things that you will be assessing as part of a standard cardiac assessment. So vital signs. The key ones that you'll be obtaining are blood pressure, heart rate, and oxygen saturation level. So if the patient has heart failure, If the patient has corresponding pulmonary congestion with that, then you would probably also want to take the respiratory rate as well because the patient could have increased work of breathing, increased respiratory rate with that. In a patient who has congestive heart failure, you're also going to be doing a full respiratory assessment as well, but we'll just be talking about the cardiac component today. So again, blood pressure, heart rate, oxygen saturation level, and maybe also the respiratory rate if you're noticing some pulmonary congestion. So what are you looking for with the blood pressure? So a normal blood pressure is a systolic less than 120 with a diastolic less than 80. And then we have elevated blood pressure, which you might see termed prehypertension, Elevated blood pressure is when that systolic is 120 to 129. The diastolic is still less than 80 with elevated blood pressure or prehypertension. And then we have stage 1 hypertension, which is going to be present with the systolic of 130 to 139 or a diastolic 80 to 89. And then stage two hypertension is present when that systolic pressure is 140 or greater, or the diastolic is 90 or greater. And then we have hypertensive crisis, which is a systolic greater than 180 and or a diastolic greater than 120. So those are your blood pressure parameters, what you're looking for when you assess the patient's blood pressure. I want you to stick around to the end of this episode because we'll be doing some pod quizzing and I'll probably come back and ask you those questions. Okay, we're also looking at heart rate. Anything above 100 is considered tachycardia. Tachycardia can be present for a ton of reasons that have nothing to do with the patient having a cardiac history or cardiac dysfunction. It can be elevated in states of fever, infection, dehydration, anxiety, hypoxia. Maybe they just drank four Red Bulls. Um, It could be elevated because of pain. And it can also be elevated because of something going on cardiac-wise, such as uncontrolled atrial fibrillation, for example. So when we look at treating tachycardia, we're almost always going to be identifying and addressing the underlying cause. Now, looking at heart rate, anything below 60 is bradycardia. And the important thing to know about bradycardia is that it can be symptomatic and it can be asymptomatic, and it just depends on the patient. Many patients, especially athletes, will have asymptomatic bradycardia just at their baseline. So let's say I have a patient with a low heart rate. The first thing I'm probably going to do is correlate that against their blood pressure. I'm also going to correlate that against their level of consciousness and any other associated signs and symptoms. So let's say the patient's heart rate is 53 
And the blood pressure is 116 systolic. And they're alert, oriented, they're talking to me, they're making sense, they have no complaints. That patient has asymptomatic bradycardia. I would probably then just go peek at the chart. I'm curious, what's their baseline heart rate been? And many times what you'll see is this patient has a bradycardia at baseline. They're fine. However, let's say I have a patient whose heart rate is 53 and their blood pressure is 82 systolic. Well, that's not fine, right? That patient has symptomatic bradycardia. Let's say they're also disoriented on top of that. Now I'm getting really concerned. So bradycardia related to pathological processes could also result in other symptoms like shortness of breath, pulmonary edema, chest pain, feeling lightheaded or dizzy. So when the bradycardia is symptomatic, we definitely treat that. And then oxygen saturation levels was the other one. It can be low with cardiac dysfunction, especially with, say, for example, severe bradycardia, patients who have heart failure, patients who have congenital heart defects, things like that. And then when you have a patient with, say, heart failure who has that congestive component, they may also have increased respiratory rate, increased work of breathing. You would want to dive deeper into their respiratory assessment as well. Okay, a part of our basic cardiac assessment is that we're going to ask the patient a bunch of questions. So do they have a cardiac history? Have they ever had any previous cardiac diagnostic tests? Have you ever had an EKG? Have you ever had an echocardiogram or a stress test? Ask them those things. They may not correlate having a diagnostic test with having a cardiac history, especially if the diagnostic tests were inconclusive or came back normal. Ask the patient if they have a family history of cardiac disease. Ask the patient if they have unusual fatigue that's lasted, say, longer than a week or two. This would be fatigue maybe after a good night's sleep. They still wake up exhausted in the morning. Maybe they fall asleep throughout the day unintentionally. That would be signs of unusual fatigue, inability to go about your activities of daily living because of fatigue. Ask the patient about nocturia. How many times do they get up to urinate at night? Frequent nocturnal urination that interrupts sleep is associated with heart failure. Ask the patient about their risk factors and their lifestyle. This includes things like diet, exercise, alcohol use, and drug use. Inquire if they've ever been told they have obesity, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, or hypertension. Ask the patient if they ever experience palpitations. If so, does anything specific trigger them? Have they ever been diagnosed with the dysrhythmia or received treatment for palpitations? Ask the patient about sudden and unexplained weight gain. This could be due to fluid retention secondary to heart failure. And you, of course, want to ask the patient if they have chest pain. We'll go through a detailed chest pain assessment in a moment. And then you're going to be making a lot of observations about the patient. You are going to be paying attention to a lot of different things as you go about this assessment. So one of those is level of consciousness. With decreased cardiac output and decreased tissue perfusion, the patient may be confused. They could feel dizzy. They could say they're lightheaded. And in severe cases, they may even be difficult to rouse. You're also noticing their skin signs. 
Cardiac dysfunction can cause abnormal skin signs such as paleness, cyanosis, in severe cases when they're having an acute event that needs immediate attention, they could have cool and clammy skin, a duskiness to the skin, and diaphoresis. Capillary refill is something that you'll assess on just about every patient. So to assess capillary refill, you can press the fingertip, and you can do this at the toes as well, for a few seconds until it turns pale, and then you release. You're assessing for how long it takes for the color to return to normal, and a normal capillary refill time is less than three seconds. Usually, we apply the pressure at the nail bed, but if the patient has nail polish on, you're probably not going to go and find nail polish remover. I mean, there is nail polish remover in the hospital, but so many people wear gel polish or dipping powder nail polish. You can also just simply press the tip of the finger and get a pretty accurate capillary refill time from that as well. You'll have increased capillary refill times in states of low cardiac output and also in states of vascular disease. Now, we'll talk about vascular disease. That will be a whole other episode. Remain, we're just focusing on the heart in this lesson. And then we can look at clubbing of the fingers or toes. Mostly we just look at it in the fingers. That seems to be the most common place to look at it. So the most common cause of clubbing is lung cancer, but it can be associated with congenital heart defects and infective endocarditis. So to assess for clubbing, we look at the angle between the nail bed and the proximal nail fold. So if you're having trouble picturing what that means, if you go to the website and look at the blog article associated with this lesson, I have a picture there for you. So know that a normal angle is 160 degrees, and with clubbing, that angle is greater than 180 degrees. So a really quick way to assess for this is to assess for something called Shamroth's sign. And to do that, you have the patient place their index fingers together. So it's kind of hard to explain. If you go to the website, you'll see the picture. But you have them have put their index fingers together so that they touch one another from that distal knuckle on down. Okay? So if you're not driving or something, you can do this as I say it. So the index fingers are facing each other at the distal knuckle on down, almost like you're making a heart shape with your hands. If you look at the place where the nail beds are touching, you'll see a little diamond-shaped window between the two nail beds, and that indicates that we have a normal angle. If you don't see that little diamond-shaped space, then that indicates that clubbing is present. Again, go to the website. I'll put a link in the episode notes so that you can get a picture. It's, it's one of those pictures that's worth a thousand words, right? Much easier to describe with images. Okay, you're also assessing for edema. Congestive heart failure and heart disease can cause pitting edema in the feet and legs. So when you're assessing for pitting edema, you're going to start distally and work your way up. You want to see how far up that edema persists. So you press on the area with your fingers and observe for a temporary indentation. And these indentations are graded as plus one to plus four, with plus four being the most severe 
indicating an indentation of about 8 millimeters that takes longer than 30 seconds to return to normal. So plus 1 is going to be 2 millimeters. That returns to normal pretty quickly. Plus 2 is going to be, I believe that's 4 millimeters, and that's going to take a few seconds to return to normal. Plus three edema is going to be about six millimeters and take less than 30 seconds to return to normal. And then again, that plus four edema, very deep and takes a while, longer than 30 seconds to return to normal. You can also assess for abdominal distension. Right-sided heart failure can cause congestion in the GI tract and the liver, which can cause abdominal distension. And you also want to assess for a cough. This could also be something you ask the patient if they're not actively coughing during your assessment. You can ask them if they have a cough. And a lot of times, patients will have a chronic cough called a cardiac cough. And this is present with congestive heart failure. And it could indicate that maybe they haven't been diagnosed yet, maybe their condition is worsening, or maybe their treatment just isn't as effective as it should be. So a cardiac cough will be a wet, a productive cough. The sputum that comes up could even be blood-tinged. There may be wheezing involved, and the patient may say they feel like they have a bubbling feeling in their chest. Now, some patients who take ACE inhibitors will experience an adverse effect of ACE inhibitors, which is a dry, persistent cough. And this dry cough with ACE inhibitors is a really common reason for patients to switch to a different medication. And then jugular vein distension. So when pressures in the superior vena cava are elevated, the congestion backs up to the jugular vein. This pressure backs up to the jugular vein and presents as jugular vein distension. You'll typically notice this bulging of the vessel more readily on the right side. So to assess for JVD, you place the patient in a supine position with their head up about 45 degrees, and you can ask them to turn their head to the left so you can really see that right side, and you're observing for bulging of the vessel. Now, if the MD is really interested, they will get a ruler out and measure that to come up with an estimate of the central venous pressure, which again will be elevated in heart failure. Now, earlier I mentioned that you're going to ask the patient about chest pain. So a very reliable and a standardized way to assess chest pain is by using the PQRST format. So what does this stand for? P stands for provocation and palliation. What causes the pain to start? What provocates it? And then palliation, what makes the pain better? Q stands for quality. What is the quality of the pain? Chest pain may be described as sharp. It may be described as tightness and pressure. R is for radiate. Ask the patient if the pain radiates anywhere. Angina pain can radiate to the arm, the leg, the jaw, or the back. Sometimes the pain is also felt in the epigastric region. S stands for severity. How severe is the pain? And you can use a simple 0 to 10 pain scale for that. And T is for timing. Does the pain get better or worse over time? So when evaluating chest pain, it's important to understand that not all chest pain is cardiac-related, 
but chest pain is super serious. So assume it's cardiac related until you can prove otherwise. So in addition to doing the PQRST assessment, you're also assessing for any other related symptoms. So for example, you could ask the patient, is the pain worse when you take a breath? Or does it stay the same? So pain that worsens with a breath is more likely to be respiratory related. Other causes of chest pain could be anxiety. It could be gastroesophageal reflux disease. So it's very important that the patient get a full assessment. You could also observe for any associated symptoms such as palpitations, nausea and vomiting, dyspnea, pallor, and diaphoresis. Those are all things that could be associated with cardiac-related chest pain, especially when severe and in an emergency-type situation. We also want to ask our patients about shortness of breath. Shortness of breath is a common symptom of heart failure due to pulmonary congestion. So when assessing shortness of breath, simply ask the patient to rate their shortness of breath on a zero to 10 scale, just like you would with a pain scale. Also, you can observe how many words the patient can speak before they have to pause to take a breath. A patient who is only speaking in short bursts has shortness of breath. You can also assess for orthopnea, which is worsening shortness of breath when lying in the supine position. While you could lay the patient flat and assess for shortness of breath and respiratory distress, that's not really kind. You might just want to simply ask them, how many pillows do you sleep on at night? Or do you sleep propped up or in a recliner? Patients who have orthopnea will not be able to tolerate lying flat for sleep and will prop themselves up on pillows or sleep in a reclining chair. Ask the patient if they experience paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea. Now, you might say those words, and they may have no idea what you're talking about. So you could simply say, do you ever wake up in the middle of the night sitting up gasping for air? So with paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea, this is an abrupt feeling of shortness of breath that occurs during sleep. So it wakes the patient up. They're compelled to sit upright and get air. And then once they're upright, the shortness of breath feelings resolve. Okay, now let's get into the visual inspection and palpation of the chest. So looking at the anterior chest, you're going to observe for any abnormal pulsations. Okay, so a pulsation would be abnormal. And you also want to locate the apical pulse. And this should be located at the fifth intercostal space at the mid-clavicular line. Again, the apical pulse should be located at the fifth intercostal space at the midclavicular line. The apical pulse is that point of maximal impulse. It represents the apex of the heart. Any kind of lateral displacement of this apical pulse may be present in conditions such as cardiomegaly, right-sided, tension, pneumothorax, and large right pleural effusions. So if you're unable to palpate the apical pulse, you can try placing the patient on their left side, which will displace the heart a little bit more anteriorly, making it easier to palpate. And in larger individuals, you may not be able to palpate it at all. You may just need to listen for it with your stethoscope. 
Other abnormal findings are a thrill and a heave or what's sometimes called a lift. So a thrill feels like a cat's purr and indicates turbulent blood flow, which could be present in valve disease and congenital defects. A heave or lift is a sustained forceful thrusting of the ventricle during that contraction and is associated with ventricular hypertrophy. So again, a thrill is palpated. It feels like a cat's purr. It's a little vibration. And that is because of turbulent blood flow, which could be present in valve disease and congenital defects. And then that heave or that lift is that sustained forceful thrusting of the ventricle during the contraction. And it's associated with ventricular hypertrophy. Okay, are we ready to listen to the heart yet? Okay, let's listen to the heart. Before we do that, though, let's make sure you're using your stethoscope correctly. So a lot of stethoscopes have two sides and some don't, so we'll talk about both. So when your stethoscope has two sides, one side is the bell and one side is the diaphragm. The bell is going to be the smaller side, okay? So we will use the bell for lower frequency sounds, such as S3 and S4. We'll talk about what those are in just a moment. And some murmurs, okay? So the bell is that smaller side, and it's for lower frequency sounds. The diaphragm will be that larger side, and that's used for higher frequency sounds, such as S1 and S2. Now, not all stethoscopes have two sides. So when your stethoscope just has a diaphragm, you're just going to simply adjust the pressure. So light pressure will pick up lower frequency sounds, and then higher pressure will obliterate the lower frequency sounds, and you'll hear the higher frequency sounds then. So that's pretty easy to remember, right? Low pressure, low frequency sounds high pressure, higher frequency sounds. You also want to reduce environmental noise as much as you can. Make sure the patient isn't talking while you're trying to listen to their heart and turn off the TV or turn it down. Ask others in the room to refrain from talking while you're auscultating the heart and close the door if there's a lot of noise from the hallway and other rooms. Okay, so now let's talk a bit about normal heart sounds. So S1 and S2 are the normal heart sounds. So S1 is heard at the onset of systole when the mitral and tricuspid valves close. These are often referred to as the atrioventricular valves. So that's S1, when the mitral and tricuspid valves close. If the heart goes lub-dub, lub-dub, this is the lub, okay? S1. S2 is heard at the onset of diastole when the aortic and pulmonary valves close. You'll sometimes hear these valves called the semilunar valves. So S2 is heard at the onset of diastole when the aortic and pulmonary valves close. This would be the dub in lub-dub, lub-dub, okay? All right, but then we also have S3 and S4. So in children and healthy young adults, an S3 
three sound can be normal, but in middle-aged and older adults, it's considered an abnormal heart sound. And we also sometimes hear this referred to as a gallop. And when you go and listen to an example, you'll get why it's called a gallop. And it occurs during periods of rapid ventricular refilling and is associated with heart failure in that middle age or older adult. So when I was in my first semester adult assessment class, I can still remember Professor Rose describing this sound. And how she described it was sloshing in, sloshing in, sloshing in, like the blood is sloshing in at that rhythm sloshing in, sloshing in, sloshing in, okay? And then S4 has a different rhythm. And I'll have links in the episode notes so that you can go and listen to how these really sound. But if you're in a test and you're like, which one's S3 sloshing? Okay, that's that rapid ventricular filling, okay? S4, this occurs because of When the atria try to push blood into a hypertrophic or stiff ventricle, it produces this abnormal sound called S4. You'll sometimes hear this called an atrial gallop. And the way Professor Rose described this to me was a stiff wall, a stiff wall, a stiff wall, like the walls of the ventricle are stiff. So it has a different cadence than sloshing in, sloshing in, sloshing in, a stiff wall a stiff wall, a stiff wall. Get it? You can kind of hear the difference. I've got a link again that really shows you beautifully the difference between these two. I'll put that in the episode notes. And then we have murmurs, which are a different kind of abnormal heart sound. So murmurs cause like a swishing or blowing or whooshing sound that is caused by turbulent blood flow through a faulty valve or something like an atrial septal defect. Murmurs can also be due to exercise, endocarditis, anemia, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and hyperthyroidism. Another abnormal heart sound is a pericardial friction rub. So when the layers of the pericardium are inflamed, in pericarditis, the movement of the heart causes a pericardial friction rub as these inflamed layers rub against one another. And as you can imagine, pericarditis is pretty painful. The sound has a grating quality, and it is best heard with the diaphragm of your stethoscope. And I've got a link in the episode notes to take you to the article associated with this episode where I have links inside there to take you to all of these different heart sounds. And then the last one that we'll talk about are prosthetic heart valves. If your patient has had their heart valves replaced with a prosthesis, you're likely to hear what's called a clicking sound when those valves close. And it's probably going to be louder than the biologic valve sounds. And again, you can hear examples of that from the website. Another key assessment is assessing for a pulse deficit. So this is going to be present when the ventricles simply aren't strong enough to propel the blood adequately through systemic circulation. So it's a two-person job to assess for a pulse deficit, listen at the apical pulse, with your stethoscope, while another nurse palpates the radial pulse. 
Begin your counts at the same time and count for a full 60 seconds, which in nurse time feels like an eternity. A normal finding is that the counts will be the same. If the counts are not the same, subtract the radial pulse from the apical pulse to arrive at the pulse deficit. And then we also want to just listen to the whole heart and auscultate for normal or abnormal sounds there. And the best way to do this is to use a systematic approach. And one of the most common is called ape to man. So note that when you are using ape to man, you're listening to a lot of the valve closures. Where you listen does not mean that's where the valve is located, okay? What it means is this is where the sound is transmitted, okay? So don't get confused and think that this is an exact representation of anatomy. It represents where the sound is transmitted. So ape to man, the first letter is A, and that is for the aortic valve. So you listen at the right sternal border at the second intercostal space, and you're listening for S2 here. And then P is the pulmonic valve. Listen at the left sternal border at the second intercostal space. So the aortic valve was at the right sternal border. You're just going to go straight across for the pulmonic valve, left sternal border, second intercostal space. This is also S2. And then you drop down one intercostal space on that left sternal border. So now you're in the third. ICS or intercostal space, and this is herbs point. And the cool thing about herbs point is that you're listening for S1 and S2 at this point. Then you're going to drop down one more intercostal space to the fourth ICS on that left sternal border, and this is the T in the ape to man. This is the tricuspid valve. You're listening for S1 here. And then for M, for the mitral valve, drop down one more intercostal space. So now you're in the fifth ICS and travel over to the midclavicular line. Again, you'll be listening for the mitral valve here and S1. You will also hear S3 and S4 if they're present, most likely at this point. This is that apical pulse point. So that is your quick-ish review of cardiac assessment. So I want to do a little bit of pod quiz with you. And if you like this style of review, then I want you to check out Study Sesh, which is a private podcast that I have with over 100 episodes. And most of them are of this pod quiz type where I ask a question, pause to give you time to answer, and then provide the answer. It's a great way to review and get more studying done on the go. What type of hypertension does a patient have when their systolic blood pressure is 128 over 92? So that is going to be stage two hypertension because the diastolic pressure is above 90. Very good. What about if your patient has a systolic blood pressure 
of 121 over 76. That would be an elevated blood pressure because the systolic is between 120 and 129, but the diastolic is below 80. What about a blood pressure of 116 over 72? That would be a normal blood pressure. How about a blood pressure of 123 over 84? That's going to be stage one hypertension. Even though the systolic is not terrible, it's considered elevated, it's that diastolic of 84 that puts them into the stage one hypertension stage, which again is a diastolic between 80 and 89. Okay, very good. Next, tachycardia is a heart rate above 100 beats per minute. And then what about bradycardia? Bradycardia is present when the heart rate is below 60. True or false, bradycardia always requires treatment. That is false. Symptomatic bradycardia requires treatment, but many times bradycardia can be asymptomatic. That's why it's so important that you do an assessment. What is the normal finding when you assess capillary refill? Less than three seconds. When you're assessing for pitting edema, where do you start your assessment? You want to start distally and then work your way proximally. So starting at the feet or the ankles and working your way up the legs. Is the cough with an ACE inhibitor, so an adverse effect of an ACE inhibitor, is that cough a wet, productive cough or a dry cough? It is a dry cough. When the jugular vein is distended, what does that tell us about central venous pressure? It is elevated, and it will be elevated in what kind of heart condition? In heart failure. Excellent. What does the P in the chest pain PQRST mnemonic refer to? It refers to provocation and palliation. What makes the pain start and what makes the pain better? What does the Q refer to? Quality and the R Radiate, excellent. What about the S and the T? S was for severity and T is for timing. Does the pain get better or worse over time? 
what's an easy way to assess for orthopnea without actually lying the patient flat? You can simply ask the patient, how many pillows do you sleep on at night or do you sleep propped up like in a reclining chair? What is the condition where the patient is woken suddenly from sleep with the intense urge to sit up so that they can catch their breath? That is paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea. What side of the stethoscope is used to auscultate low-frequency or low-pitched sounds? The bell, and then the diaphragm would be for high-pitched or high-frequency sounds. What does S1 represent? It represents the closing of two valves. What does that represent? S1 occurs when the mitral and tricuspid valves close. And is that at the onset of systole or the onset of diastole? Onset of systole. And then what about S2? When is S2 heard at the onset of diastole? When which valves close? The aortic and pulmonary valves. Very good. Which one is the dub in lub dub, lub dub, S1 or S2? S2. Very good. Which heart sound could be normal in a young, healthy adult, but is abnormal in a middle-aged or older adult? That is S3. And is that the sloshing in or the a stiff wall? That was the sloshing in one. This is occurring because of that rapid ventricular filling. Okay, now let's go through the ape to man. So for the A, where are you listening for the aortic valve? Right sternal border, second ICS. And are you listening for S1 or S2? S2, very good. What about the P, pulmonic valve? You're listening at what side of the sternal border? The left side, at what intercostal space? The second ICS. And are you listening for S1 or S2? S2. Excellent. What's so special about Herb's Point? At Herb's Point, you'll hear all the valve closures. You'll hear S1 and S2. Where do you listen for Herb's Point? What side of the sternal border? Left, very good. And what ICS? 
the third intercostal space. Okay, how about the tricuspid valve? You're going to hear this close when you listen at what side of the sternal border? The left side and at which intercostal space? The fourth, very good. Are you listening for S1 or S2? S1. And then the last one is the mitral valve. You're listening for this at what location on the chest? Midclavicular line at the fifth intercostal space. Are you listening for S1 or S2? S1, and then what other sounds might you hear most readily in this location? S3 and S4. Very, very good. So if you found that helpful to kind of do that active recall, then you got to check out Study Sesh. People love it. They use it throughout nursing school. I've had a lot of students use it to prep for NCLEX. It's absolutely amazing, if I do say so myself. So thank you so much for joining me today. I've loved being your study partner as we talk about cardiac assessment. I've got a really cool episode for you next week. I'm really excited about it. We're going to be talking about rhabdomyolysis. And I took a deep dive on this. I learned a ton. I thought I already kind of knew about rhabdo because I've taken care of so many patients with that condition. But I'm telling you, I learned a ton and I can't wait to share it with you. So I will see you back here again next week for that. Bye for now. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing.